So if you got your Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to finish out Acts chapter 4 and do part of Acts chapter 5 today. Uh, and you'll understand why we're, uh, we're, we're breaking it up that way as we, as we get started. So as I was, uh, as I was reading this week, um, I don't know if you all remember, I used to, well, you don't remember this because I have never shared it with you. But do any of you remember a basketball player named Steve Kerr? Okay, Steve Kerr, all right. Now, Steve Kerr, he, um, in, in the, the story that I read, at this point, he's now a coach. And he was coaching one of the, one of the all-star teams. And he, they, the, sometimes they'll, uh, if you ever watch sports, I don't watch it all that often, I don't sports very well, but um, sometimes they will let the camera come into the, the, the little huddle that the, that the players do, and you get an inside glimpse of, of what a coach is saying to his players. And a lot of times it's, it's usually pretty serious. They're making adjustments like, okay, you need to guard this guy. Watch here. He's going to pass over here. He's giving them plays to do different things like that. Other times, though, and in this particular case, they, they went in and Steve Kerr said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to go on the court. One of you is going to get the ball. You're going to throw it to another guy. You're going to throw it to this guy over here, and then one of you is going to shoot the ball. And everybody started laughing because it was, it was kind of this goofy thing, right? He didn't have anything serious to say or whatever. Um, as we're reading through the book of Acts, a lot of times what we get is we get this like 30,000-foot view of the things that are going on. But every once in a while, Luke will dive down in, and he'll give you some of the inside workings of what was taking place in those. Basically, he dives down and lets us get inside of the huddle. And we're going to see that happening today as we take a look at this. I've entitled this, um, this message, Sacrifice and Sin. Okay, we're going to call it, we call it Sacrifice and Sin because we're going to see the church from two different angles today. We're going to see two different things that took place in the early church and, and, and how they were dealt with. Uh, so if you have your Bible, I'm going to read the first part and then when, when we need to, I'm going to get to the second part here. So starting in Acts chapter 4, 32, I'm going to read down through 37. Uh, we'll take a look, or I'll read that, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. Acts, 42, or Acts 4, 32 says this, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called, called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give blessing to, uh, to the reading of your word and the study of your word as we dig into this, Lord. Help us to, uh, to have our spiritual eyes open, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit as we study this passage, and we would be uh, emboldened to go out and, and, and share what you've done for us uh, the, the grace and the mercy that you've shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help our church to be, uh, to, to use this as a pattern of what we should be like. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. 
All right, so like I said, sometimes he, he pulls uh, Luke, who is writing this, sometimes he will he'll give you this 30,000-foot view. You get to see everything that's going on as, as the missionaries are going here, there, and everywhere. And sometimes he'll dive in, and he'll give you a glimpse behind the curtain inside the huddle, so to speak, as to, to what was going on. And that's what we've got going on here. Um, now, this first section, uh, verses 32 through 37... I, I call that the sacrificing church, okay? And, and, and the reason that we call it the sacrificing church is because as you read through here, you can't help but see the sacrifice that the people that made up the early church were willing to make for each other. And, and as we dive into that, there's, there's lots of different things. The first thing that we see uh, in Acts 4.32 is that the church was uncommonly unified, all right, it, it, they were uncommonly unified. Acts 4.32 tells us that they were of one heart and one mind. The believers in the early church were preoccupied with ministering to each other. In fact, they were trying to outdo each other in ministering to each other. Basically, you know how you, if you have a brother, you always try to one-up your brother? All right? Or maybe, maybe you've got that guy at work who you tell something, and he's got a one-up it. He's like, oh, yeah? I got two cars. Or, I, I love these people. I, I used to work for a lady who did this. You would talk about an illness, and her illness was that plus something else on top. Like, well, I had the stomach flu. Yeah, I had the stomach flu, but I also had a compound fracture. All right, well, like, I coughed and, you know, felt like my lung was going to come out. I coughed and my lung did come out. Okay, okay, you win, you win, right? The, the people in the early church were trying to one-up each other in loving and ministering to each other. They wanted to make sure that the needs of others were being met. It, uh, I wrote this down. In fact, they were so caught up in taking care of each other that they didn't have time to worry about their own needs. They were so concerned with how am I going to take care of this person and that person, they didn't even have time to think about what's going on, like the car alarm that's going off right now. All right. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 3, they, this, is, this is truly was their motto. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. All right, let me read that verse again, because clearly Satan is, uh, I don't like to over-spiritualize things, but you know when car alarm's going off and you're trying to preach, I think the devil's involved with that somehow. Let me read that again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Consider others as more important than yourselves. Imagine what that would look like if, if we as a church grasped that, right? We weren't concerned about, oh, this person didn't say hello to me, right? This person isn't taking care of my needs. This person isn't talking to me. This person doesn't love me. And instead of worrying about that, we went out of our way to make sure that other people felt loved. Imagine what that would do for us. That would be crazy. The second thing, not only were they of the same heart, but the Bible tells us they were of the same mind, okay? They had a love for each other. They were trying to out-love each other, but they were also had the same mind, which means they were consumed with reaching each other or reaching others with the gospel. They had the same goal in mind. It wasn't they had this, okay, we want to do this over here. We wanted to, Their focus was entirely on sharing the gospel with other people. They didn't allow disagreements to get in the way of fulfilling the mission given to them by Jesus. All right? We've all heard those stories 
We've all heard those stories where churches split because this group over here wants air conditioning and this group over here doesn't want air conditioning. Or this, per, this group over here wants chairs and this group over here wants pews. Or red carpet and blue carpet. We've all heard those things where we get caught up in these piddly little arguments and what ends up happening? We lose sight of our focus. We lose sight of the fact that we're supposed to be sharing the gospel with a world that desperately needs it and we're at each other's throats because this person wants this and this person wants this. The early church was of one mind. Their focus was on sharing the gospel with people that needed it. Of course, there are going to be times where it's necessary to part ways. All right, Our church, right now, I, I heard some rumblings of it this morning. Our church recently, we separated from a, a group, the Shenandoah Baptist Association. And the reason that we separated from them is because they were holding beliefs. They were holding positions that go against what the scripture says. There are churches that are a part of the Shenandoah Baptist Association that have staff members that are active homosexuals, right? That is against the scripture, right? There are other things. And, and because those things go against the scripture, we had to say, we love you. We can't minister with you anymore. We cannot partner with you because the things that you're teaching are against the scripture. The positions that you're holding are against the scripture. There are stupid reasons to get upset with each other. Car, or carpet and chairs and pews and all that stuff. And there are real reasons to say, look, we love you. Continue doing what you, what you believe God is calling to you. We just can't partner with you anymore. The early church was of the same mind. Another thing that we see in Acts 4.33 is that the early church was characterized by strong preaching. Now, I didn't put this in here because I think I'm a strong preacher. I realize I've only been doing this for... Yeah, you know, on a consistent basis for a little less than two years. I hope you guys can look up here and say, he's gotten better, all right? There was, <laughs> there was a gentleman who used to attend this church. Uh, he hasn't been here in a, a considerable amount of time. But every Sunday, he was, he would leave. When he would come, he'd go, you're getting better. You're getting better. I'm like, thanks, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he hasn't been here for a while, so I must not be that good. But anyway, um, Acts 4.33 say, states that the apostles were continually preaching the resurrection of Jesus. That was their focus, was they were going to preach, they were going to share the truth of the gospel, and the truth of the gospel was that Jesus came to earth, he died on a cross for us, our sins, and God raised him from the dead. And the fact that God raised him from the dead, he is alive today. And all of the things that they were doing was a result of Jesus being alive. That was the message that they were giving. And because they were doing this, because they were preaching this, they were experiencing great grace from everyone around them. Not the religious leaders. The religious leaders hated them. And we're going to see that again as we continue on through chapter 5. The religious leaders hated them. But the community as a whole, they saw what they were doing. They saw the great things that were taking place. And they were extending great grace to them. And one of the things that worries me, one of the things that worries me a great deal um, is... The amount of, uh, uh, just a term I made up, motiv motivational preaching that there is today. Okay, there's, there is so much where people, people will, uh, they'll, they'll, go, they'll flock to these churches and they flock by the thousands to go in and hear a motivational speech with a Bible verse tacked onto it. Here's the problem with that. Okay, here's the problem with that. That's not what the Bible teaches us. 
okay? The Bible teaches us the truth of the gospel is this. The truth of the gospel is we are sinners. We are wicked, desperate sinners. If you read the book of Romans, you cannot come across, come away from reading the book of Romans without an understanding that you are a wicked, desperate sinner. But because of Jesus Christ, and because of what Jesus Christ did, that is what makes us good. And that is what makes us righteous in the sight of God. And that is what makes us able to do the things that God has called us to do. It is only through Jesus Christ. So if somebody stands up and tells you, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, but don't throw Jesus in there, guess what they're doing? They're teaching you a false gospel. They're teaching you that you have the ability to do this, and the Bible does not teach that. The gospel is, you are this way because of Jesus, and it is only because of Jesus that you are able to do this. That is the truth of the gospel. That is what the apostles were trying to preach. Now, as we continue... Um, Acts 4, 34 and 35, and a little bit of uh, verse 32 backing up, is the gospel, or the early church was also known for their sacrificial sharing, okay? People will take this passage and they'll try to teach communism from it because it says that the early church had everything in common, that they, they, didn't have, they didn't think any of their possessions were their own. That is not what this passage is teaching, what this passage is teaching is this, is that when people in the church saw that there was a need, they, were, they realized that no, the things that they owned didn't mean that much to them. Taking care of their friend over here who was in a struggle, that was more important. And they were willing to separate from their possessions in order to minister to this person. I've seen this church do that on many many occasions all right my, my wife and i we went out to uh we went out to help with the uh, um, kids power packs friday night we delivered probably about 50 or 60 cans of soup to help go to to children that that may possibly not have food to eat because school's going to be closed on the weekends or whatever all right i've seen you all make sacrifices there was a time uh, probably I, I don't remember the exact date there was a, a need in our church there was a, a it was a fairly large need in our church and I got up here and I said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a need in our church. This is what we're going to do. And the money just poured in to help meet that need. We, we, we're, we did something for the school over here. We raised about $70 at Chick-fil-A. It, it was a rainy, cold night at Chick-fil-A. And I got up and said, hey, if you want to help out, come to Chick-fil-A. We had so many people come out to Chick-fil-A. We had people from the community come out to Chick-fil-A. But in addition to that, I said, all right, we're going to take up a special offering. And you know what happened? We raised $180 more to give to the school. I've seen this church be sacrificial in their giving. And I got to tell you, it makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. I don't want you guys to think I'm beating up on you this morning. It makes me so happy to see those kind of things. The, the principle here is that we need to be willing and lovingly even sacrificially be willing to give to our church, all right? When there is a need, we need to step up and meet it. But we need to be willing to also give sacrificially to the church because when we give, it is a sign of worship to, to Jesus Christ because of what he did for us, all right? So often, there are, there are people who will throw a little bit into the plate of, of what they have left over at the end. That is not what Jesus and God, what God has called us to do. God has called us to be willing and sacrificially to be, I'm trying to make sure my words match up together. He's called us to sacrificially give to the church. 
and this, the early church did it out of love for others. They truly understood the nature of the uh, the nature of the grace of the gospel, and it overflowed into their generosity. When we truly get caught up in the gospel, when we truly understand the gospel, and I got to tell you, we're never going to truly understand the full impact of the gospel. But when it gets into us, it's going to cause us to be generous. It's going to cause us to want to let go and to give. When grace is abounding, people get generous. It, it kind of makes you wonder if people who have difficulty with giving, if they've truly ever understood what the gospel means. It, when, when, when people get up and talk about giving and, and you immediately start to bristle, right? You, you start defensive and you, you pull your shell up and you pull your, pull your guards up because somebody is talking about giving. It makes me wonder if you've ever truly experienced what the gospel is. All right. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, as we finish this section, there is a prime example of someone who did this. Um, there's a guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas is going to be a key player as we continue through the book of Acts. He's gonna, he, he, he does quite a, quite a bit of things in the book of Acts. But what he did was he heard that there was a need. And he looked around and he said, you know what? I've got this piece of property over here. I'm going to sell this property and I'm going to take it to the church and I'm going to give it to the church to help meet this need. That was a man who was truly caught up in the gospel and willing to make the sacrifices. There was no obligation that he did to. No, Peter wasn't going, yo, Barnabas, yeah, yeah, we got this need over here. You got this piece of land. You want to make something happen. There, there's no indication that that happened. Out of, his, out of the grace in his heart, Barnabas said, I'm going to take this land and I'm going to sell it. That is the good section here. That is the sacrifice section, which brings us to a painful scene in the, in the book of Acts. All right, let me, let me read through it here. We're going to read down through verse 11, uh, and then I want to share a few things about it. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, clearly this was before cell phones, because that, that wouldn't have gone down if, all right. Like, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Now, before we dive into this, I want to just point out two things here. Um, the first thing is some have accused Luke of trying to write a, a piece of propaganda 
to try to um, make the early church like look like it was something special and trying to get people to convince to come to Christianity. Some people have accused him of that. If that was true, there's no way this story would have gotten in. All right? This is an ugly, dark mark on the history of the church, th- this event that took place right here. And if, Peter, or if uh, Luke was trying to write something just to convince people to become Christians, I guarantee he wouldn't have put this in here. The second thing, though, and this is, this is kind of nerdy, so bear with me here. Um, the first word of chapter 5 is the word but. Okay, not be, I, I knew that was going to happen. All right, but it not, not, yeah, that's funny. All right, let me, let me gather myself here because... I teach third grade, man. We say the word but, everybody breaks out laughing. All right. Now, this word right here is a conjunction, which means it ties what we, the, the first story that we read about Barnabas, it ties that story to the event that we're about to see. These two are bookends on the same event. And the reason I point this out is because we're in a brand new chapter. All right? And, and, and the reason I'm saying this is that the, the chapter and the verses, I'm sure you all know this already, but I want to teach it to you anyway. The chapter and the verses, they were put in way later, okay? They, 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 that was broken up by people um, in church history. I remember reading about it, but I don't remember why they did it or how they did it. But this, this piece goes together. It, it's one complete thought. Those verses and things that they were put in uh, after the fact. So anyway, moving on from there. Um, there, there was, as we look at this event, here's, here's what I'm thinking happened. Barnabas did this, and the church celebrated it, right? Because if somebody is willing to make that big of a sacrifice, we should celebrate that kind of thing. And as the church was celebrating, saying, hey, Barnabas did this wonderful thing, Ananias is sitting over there in the corner going, hey, wait a second. Look at all the praise that Barnabas is getting. I want some of that for me. Look at that. Everybody's treating him like a rock star. Right? If, if I did, we, hey, Sapphira, we got that back alley, right? We can, we can sell that, right? right? And, and so he started hatching this plan. He started coming up with this plan on how he could get just as much praise and just as much glory as uh, Ananias, and, or as, I'm sorry, as Barnabas were getting. And so this is what they did. They went out and they sold their land awesome, right? They were willing to make the sacrifice, but here's the deal. They made it for the wrong reason. They did it not because they wanted to meet the the needs of the people in the church. They did it because they wanted people to treat them like a rock star and be like, yeah, there's Ananias. Look at what he did. Now, I remember reading this story growing up and I'm going, wait a second. He sold the land. He gave the money to the church. Why did God kill him? Right? The reason is, is because he lied about it. All right. He lied about what was going on. The, the scripture seems to indicate that he, he sold it for a certain price, but he went out and told everybody, hey, I had this piece of land and I sold it for this amount. Right? And he made it sound as if he was giving the whole amount of money to the church, making it look like he was more righteous and more, more important than, than he was. Um, the, the, the Greek word that they use here in this text, it, it seems to mean that he was extorting money from it. All right? and, and, and Peter even says, he says, listen, that land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to do anything with it. And even after you sold it, the money was still yours. But the, so what, what's happening here is Ananias, he was lying to people to try to get, to get, um, uh, to get the attention that Barnabas was getting. 1 John chapter 2, 16 tells us what happened. It says, For everything in the world, 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And what we see happening here is when you have this nice, perfect thing happening, this this wonderful, God-glorifying thing like the early church was, Satan is going to do his best to try to infiltrate it however he can. He's going to try, when, when, when the church is uncommonly unified, supernaturally unified, I guarantee that is going to be the time when Satan is going to come at us the hardest. Satan is going to do whatever he can to infiltrate that situation and rip it apart, to destroy it, because the last thing that he wants is for us to be unified and loving each other and going out to spread the gospel. That is what Satan is trying to do. And that is what he was trying to do here with Ananias and Sapphira. He was trying to get in. And of course, Peter confronted him about his sin. And there was some discussion in some of the books I read about how did Peter know that Ananias had done this, all right? Because it says right here, he came in, he put the money down, and, and Peter immediately goes, hey, Ananias, why'd you do this? And I, I imagine Ananias is going, what are you talking about? What, what are you talking about? And, and, and Peter just flat out said, listen, man, you are lying to the Holy Spirit, right? Who, why did you allow Satan to fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And there was some discussion as to whether Peter was suspicious of Ananias already, and, and maybe he was just taking a shot in the dark, or... If uh, there was rumors floating around, you know how rumors circulate, and Peter had heard some of the word on the street as to what was going on. Um, but, but I think most likely it was the Holy Spirit gave Peter insight into what was happening. And so he approached him about this, and he said, listen, what you have done is a serious, serious matter. You didn't just lie to me. You are lying to God. And as soon as he said that, Ananias fell down dead, all right? He fell down, and, and again, there's, there's some speculation as to what caused him to, to die, whether it was a heart attack or any of those things, but, but the, uh, the, the language, the, the Greek seems to indicate, it matches up with a word um, in, in some of the, the Old Testament that would indicate that it was a divine judgment, okay? That, that God supernaturally struck him dead. And a few hours later, as we read, Sapphira came in. And like I said, this was probably before social media because had this been social media, there would have been video of that dude falling down and being dragged out of the church. It would have been viral by that point. She had no idea what was going on. And Peter went up to her and said, hey, Sapphira, is this how much you sold it for? And because she was in cahoots with her husband, she said, yeah, that's how much we sold it for. She had the opportunity to do the right thing at that point. And Peter said, listen, because, because you've, you've planned with him to, to lie to us, the same people that just buried your husband are coming to bury you. And as soon as he said that, she fell down dead and was dragged out as well. And there are two things that, that we can learn from this passage. The first is that sin inside the church is a major deal. All right? It is a major, major deal. Ananias and Sapphira's actions were devastating to the early church not because they decided to keep some of the money from the sale of their property, but because they were being used by Satan to disrupt the unity that was being experienced by the Holy Church, or by the early church, sorry. When they brought that sin in, it was starting to fester and spread, and it was going to continue, and it had to be removed immediately. Peter points out in Acts 5.3 that Ananias' heart was filled by Satan and that Satan was using greed and pride to get him to sin against the Holy Spirit. But even worse than greed and pride, Satan was trying to convince those involved 
that the sin was no big deal. In doing so, this line of thinking leads to the destruction of people and the church. When we sin, we don't just sin against people, we sin against God. I wrote this quote down. This is from John Owen. Uh, He's an old Puritan writer. He wrote this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have constantly got to go to war with our sin. The second thing that we see from this is that we need to hold each other accountable for the way we live our lives. And I realize that when I say that, people are going to bristle because we live in a culture that is very much, I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing, you mind your business, I'm going to mind my business. All right. Don't worry. Don't try to get in my don't try to get all up in my business, because if you do, we're going to have words. Right. I think we've all experienced that at some point. Peter knew that if the sin was left unchecked, it would continue to fester and spread. But I'll be honest. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. Holding each other accountable for our sins is difficult. It is hard. All right. There have been times where I've had to go to people and say, listen, This is what's going on. This is what I'm seeing. This is sin against the scripture. And I have to tell you, I was physically sick leading up to that moment, and I was physically sick after leading that moment. It is gut-wrenching to have to go to somebody and say, what you are doing is sin, and you've got to get it taken care of. On the flip side of that coin, I've had people come to me and say, what you're doing is sin, and you need to get it taken care of. And i got to tell you, it's equally as painful, all right? It is is a hard thing to do. But the scripture tells us that we are to hold each other accountable for the way that we live our lives. That means we have to get our relationships to the place where we're able to speak into each other's lives without fear of them getting angry at us. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to get mad at you. But if you go to them out of a sense of love and you say, listen, I love you and I cannot allow you to do this anymore... Hopefully, through this Holy Spirit, that relationship will not end. All right, sometimes it will. Sometimes that that will sever the relationship. But you have done what you need to do. It's like if the stove is hot and my child is reaching up to put her hand on the stove, am I going to allow her to do that? No, because she's going to get hurt. She's going to burn her hand. So sometimes I have to gently grab her hand. And there are other times where I have to smack it quickly because it's this far from the hot burner, right? She's going to be mad at me. She's going to be upset with me. But I kept her from being harmed. And that's the same thing that happens here. We read this story and some of us are probably thinking that the the discipline that God gave Ananias and Sapphira was pretty severe. It was pretty extreme, right? He, He lied about some money. God killed him, right? Some of you are probably thinking or people watching going, Yeah, that was pretty extreme. It's only extreme if you think that sin is no big deal. The Bible is full of time where I I was reading in, uh, in, forgive me, I don't remember which book it was. I was reading one of the first five books of the Bible and Aaron's sons came and they were were gonna worship God, but they brought the wrong kind of fire. They brought strange fires, what the Bible says. And do you know what happened? That fire came up and it burned them alive. That's pretty extreme. When we think that sin is no big deal, we get upset about these things. But when we understand that God is a holy God, God is is so far above us, God is so holy that he can't have any interaction with sin, we start to understand why these things are taking place the way they are. 
Our sin was so devastating that it made us enemies of God. Thankfully, God loved us enough to send a sacrifice to restore us back to him. That sacrifice was Jesus Christ. Now, the result of all of this, of Ananias and Sapphira meeting this, their end the way that it did, was that the church quickly understood how serious God takes sin. Acts 5.11 says that a great fear came over the church. Fear is a unique word, and we often relate it with being scared. Too many churches, though, don't take sin seriously enough. We, t- we, t- we tend to, to brush it aside, or, or, or we don't want to confront it. We don't want to do those things. That could not be said of this early church. They understood that being a follower of Jesus required a great deal of commitment. Now, as we move on, as we move on, the last thing is we have this story right here. We have the sacrifices in the church. We have uh, the sins in the church. The last thing is, what does all of this mean for us? What does all of this this mean? What what do we need to do with this? So there are some takeaways from these two contrasting events. Uh, The first, we need to have a healthy fear of God. All right, some of us don't fear God the way that we should. All right, that's why we can turn on South Park, and I'm guilty of this. We can turn on South Park, and we can see them making fun of Jesus, and it's no big deal to us because we don't have a. I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't watched South Park in years. So if you're if you're judging me, like, what's he doing watching South Park? I haven't watched it in years. Okay, this was back when my pagan days. We'll, we'll call it that. Um, but we need to have a healthy fear of who God is. We need to fully understand that. It was clear that this was not the case with Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't think anything of walking into church lying about what they had just done. It's no big deal. Like We're we're helping take care of needs. No big deal. God saw it differently, and that's the reason that it came came to that. Um, When you go to the zoo, when you go to the zoo, you see a lion in a cage, right? As long as you're on this side of the wall, you're like, hey, let's take a picture of the lion, right? Hey, you, know, you, you get selfies with the lion. I, I hate that word, by the way. Um, you, you take pictures of it. You're like, hey, you, know, you might throw something at the lion to try to get it. Now, as long as that lion is in the cage, everything's good. You take that lion and you put it on the path next to you, I guarantee you're not going to be like, we get a picture with you, Mr. Lion. You're going to run. You're going to be scared. The same is true of God. When we, have a, when we truly understand who God is, the way that we worship him and the way that we come before him and the way that we live our lives in his presence is going to be vastly different when we don't understand who God is. Proverbs 1, chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And Galatians 6, verse 7 reminds us that do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Right, right now... <laughs> those that are mocking God are storing up his wrath. And the Bible tells us as we continue on, there there are uh, verses in Revelation where people are begging for the mountains to fall over on them because they are terrified of the wrath of God that is to come. And if we don't have an understanding of who God is and just how holy he is and the way that we worship him, we're we're gonna find ourselves in that position. The second thing that we see is we need to consistently apply the gospel. We can see the gospel at play in both situations presented here. When we truly grasp the gospel, something, like I said, something we will always be working out, it is freeing. When we get the gospel, when we truly understand what Jesus did for us and what the implications of that are for our lives, it frees us, it sets us free. We are set free from our sins, but we are also set free 
to do things for God. So we're, we're set free from these sins over here, but now we can go and do these things for God. We are set free from our sinful pride and our greed, and we are set free to be generous and loving. We are set free from our need to be accepted by others, and we are set free to lavishly love and serve others. In the early church, the believers grasped the gospel, and it set them free to love each other and to sacrifice their own needs and desires in order to bless and take care of the, uh, those that had need. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, either they had never truly received the gospel or they had not allowed it to penetrate their life enough to, to, help, them to, to help them fully impact their lives. Either way, they were still ensnared in their sin and it led to their downfall. The final thing that we can learn from this is we need to live a life uh, with a sense of repentance. I read that quote that said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Ananias thought nothing of living in open rebellion to God. And we can turn on the television. We may even have neighbors. We may even have loved ones who think nothing of living in open rebellion to God. Right? There, are, there are people that, that are, are doing things, living, thing, living ways that, that know that are, are in full rebellion to God. And that what ends up happening is that he refused, Ananias refused to confess it. Our friends, our loved ones who are living this way are refusing to confess it. As believers, our sins are forgiven, but it is vital that we confess our sins to allow, instead of allowing them to fester. Right? If I get a cut, if I get a, if I get a, um, a um, what do you call this, the pieces of wood that get stuck in your skin? So there you go, splinter. If I get a splinter, I'm not gonna just be like, meh, no big deal. Because what's going to happen? My arm's going to get infected. It's going to turn green. It's going to fall off. All right? I'm going to get gangrene or whatever. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to get that taken care of so my arm doesn't fall off. All right? I know I'm being kind of gross today, but that's trying. I'm trying to, to, for you to get grasp the sense of, of what's going on here. Um, Ananias wasn't willing to do that, and it affected his relationship with others. King David found himself in the same position. If, right, if you remember the story of, of David and Bathsheba, David went into Bathsheba and, and, and committed sin with her. And because he did that and he did not confess it, it ended up causing all of these problems, including the death of two people who were innocent in the situation, including his, his newborn child. Right? And this is, what, this is what he wrote in Psalm 139. He said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. David understood what it was to repent. Let me close with this. These two scenes, Barnabas and, Barnabas and Ananias, show a great contrast in the early church. The first church was not a utopia without conflict, but it, definitely, it is definitely one that we should do our best to emulate. Right, we look at this and we have to understand that there were, there were problems in that early church, but it is something that we as a church today in 2018 should do our best to emulate, where we are working harder than, harder than ever to out-love and out-serve and out-give those in the church because we're trying to meet their needs, not because we want the, the power looking at us. They were models of generosity and love for one another, not because they were special, but because they were caught up in the supernatural love that only comes through grasping the gospel and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is this possible today? Is it possible for us to have the, the church of Acts 4.32 down through 37? Is that possible today? 
Yes, but it only happens when we yield ourselves to the leading of the Spirit and understand our freedom in Jesus Christ. When we are no longer, when we are no longer need to be imprisoned by our sins, as Ananias and Sapphira found themselves. The church can definitely model the, Acts, the church of Acts 4, but only when we are fully walking with the Spirit, trusting in Jesus Christ to help us live out the gospel. Let's pray.